Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Lady Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Jocelyn Pearl, and today we have another exciting interview to share with you all. I talked to Nikita Singh, who has a background in robotics and AI, and she's now a co-founder and chief product officer at a new company called Artificial Inc. We're going to get into her journey to helping to found Artificial and what they're trying to accomplish in the life science space. Before we dive into her interview, I just wanted to give a shout out to our sponsor, Kendall Investor Relations. They are a company that's there to help you um, navigate talking to investors. If you are an entrepreneur in the biotech space, please reach out to Carlo and his team. They are there to help. I'll put the link below. I also wanted to mention that we have new LSP merch. I'm wearing the pink tee. Um, so if you are on ladiescientistpodcast.com, there's a merch button to our store and you can get your pink tea. We also have some uh, eco-friendly uh, cotton t-shirts that are really soft um, and everything's made to order. So it's a little bit more eco-conscious. So um, I know some of you have been asking. So thank you for supporting the podcast. All the money goes back into the show um, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Record on this computer. Awesome. Well, we're recording. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to Lady Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Jocelyn Pearl, and today we welcome Nikita Singh. She's the co-founder and chief product officer at a new startup called Artificial Inc. They're focused on building automation tools for the life sciences. I'm really excited to learn more about this company and um, this episode coincides nicely with a big announcement this week that Artificial Inc. recently closed their Series A funding. So congrats, Nikita. Um, very yeah. exciting accomplishment and welcome. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah, so can you tell us a little bit about what got the ball rolling with uh, this new company that you co-founded? For sure. So, you know, we uh, were a group of roboticists and automation engineers early on, and we went and visited a ton of like science labs. And something that really stuck out um, to many of us and me particularly because, you know, many years ago I used to work in a scientific lab. I thought I would be a scientist and so I used to run like immuno essays on the bench. And then, you know, fast forward like 10 years going back to the lab, it was really interesting to see that things had stayed the same in terms of how lab work is done. Um, you know, there's still like a lot of manual work. There's still a bunch of piecemeal infrastructure that gets stitched together. Um, you have like post-its on the liquid handler and whatnot. And so for us, it was really like, how can we bring the best that robots and automation have to offer to this landscape um, so we can empower scientists with the tools that I truly think they deserve in their day to day. So. That's very exciting. And as someone who's worked a little bit in the space of automation, and I've been at the bench for a while now, I think there's definitely a need there to improve some of these systems. So um, now that you guys have closed your Series A, I mean, that's a huge accomplishment for any new company. Um, can you share what that journey has been like to um, leading up to closing and kind of, you know, the things that your company is most excited to do with that um, investment? now closed. Yeah, um, I mean, it was kind of a really interesting ride to raise money over Zoom, right? Like it's a very different experience than going to different VC firms and doing your pitch uh, because you're doing it all in this like two-dimensional, um, you know, 2020 that we've had. And I think that was a really cool experience onto itself and kind of adjusting how you pitch and how you tell the story. Uh, I think for us, like Series A is a really important moment because before that, you know, we've been working with a core set of pilot customers, like folks like Beam Therapeutics and folks like Thermo. Uh, and so we got to do like a proof of concept and pilot of the work that we're trying to build and the products we're trying to build. Um, but I think with Series A, we really get to like replicate that in the one to end world with many, many more companies. Um, so as someone who loves product, I'm pretty excited to like get to deploy what we're building in not just a couple labs, but many labs. Very exciting. And for clarity, what, how do you view the role of chief product officer and what, you know, what were some of the steps leading up to you taking on a role like this? 
Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of a hybrid role that's been evolving, right? Like you see it labeled as like product marketing. There's folks who think of it like, are you a product manager? Are you a designer? Like it's still kind of unknown. Um, And I like to think about it personally as like someone who is an advocate for the customer's needs in the products that we're building as a company. Um, so I spent a ton of my energy early on at Artificial just going and interviewing like hundreds of people in different labs um, from like pharma to spin bio to like startups. And I think that experience itself like gives you a really good sense of what are the day-to-day challenges um, that you need to be able to solve in a product and a solution that you're offering as a company. Um, So really, I think of the job as like two critical things, like be a professional question asker. So like asking people hard questions, whether that's like your internal engineering team or like users in the field of like, what is bothering you and getting to like the root of it. And then I think the other part is really like an advocate for your users uh, in the context of the company that you're building. So I, I, I like to, you know, if I could change my title, I'd probably call it professional question. I love that. I mean, one of my longtime mottos has always been ask the good questions. And I think that's part of what this podcast is about, too, is just like really digging into the good questions and and learning from from others. So that's awesome. So you spent this time out in the field talking to people in the life science space and imagining a new product that would solve this problem of automation. Can you elaborate on what that looks like today? Like, is is this now something that's in existence or is it in a prototype form? Like, where is it at today? Yeah, um, so, you know, like if you think about a scientist in a lab and I'm sure you can speak to this yourself and tell me kind of if that resonates, right? It's like when a scientist walks up to an automated system, whether that's just like a Hamilton liquid handler or a TCAN or like a larger integrated system with like robotic arms and whatnot, um, it can feel very intimidating. Uh, Like I know how to code with robots and I find it intimidating to walk up and be like, what do I do? And I think a large part of that is because there's so many different interfaces and different vendors and like different software that you need to know in order to be able to access automation in front of you. And so the easiest thing to do is say like, no, thank you. Let me go to the bench and do it myself and like use my Excel spreadsheet or limbs that you have in your lab. And so what we really wanted to be conscious of is like, I think to to me, like the scientific process will always have a certain artistry and improvisation. Um, And like, it's important with the technology that goes into a lab for it to acknowledge and be humble enough to like, you know, bring that in versus try to push it out. And so everything we built has been really centered around like, how do you give that flexibility to the end user? Um, So when you walk up to an automated system, your first reaction is like, let me give it a shot. And like, if things change and I want to change the shape of my experiment along the way, I can make those adjustments versus like, I think robots and automation are always seen as like these rigid things that get relegated to a room and only like an expert is allowed to use them. Um, So for me, it's really like, how do we change that and make them more flexible and approachable while acknowledging that like, there's a certain artistry and improvisation too. Sure. process. Yeah. So I once heard, the, the president of integrated DNA technologies, IDT, you're probably familiar, um, talk about their automation system within IDT. And he used the term sneaker modules where you have kind of a contained automated system and then you know somebody with sneakers is gonna move something from that one to the next module. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious like, how similar your system is to that, or is it more like a fully automated, integrated, you have robotic arms that are gonna be transferring the plates from like, you know, X to Y? Um, Yeah, so for us, it's really like actually encoding that sneaker wear, as I've also seen it called, right, um, in a digital system. So if you imagine like with artificial, you would walk up to a work cell, you would say, this is the experiment I want to run, then our scheduler would schedule all the manual work, like the sneaker wear parts, and then also the automated work that the robot needs to do in order to process that experiment. 
you would get like a digital guide with like a digital like 3D twin to walk you through where you need to put the plates and like what that sneaker wear step looks like <laughs> essentially. So you can get kind of a digital checklist of everything you need to do. And then you can actually press run. So the robot runs and does its job and then puts all the data back into a limbs or in the cloud. Um, so it's kind of blending that manual sneaker wear with the automated side of the world. Very interesting. Um, so you, you've had some, some interesting experience leading up to Artificial Inc. Is this the first company that you co-founded or were, were there others previously? No, this is the first one. So Okay. How's that, how's that experience been for you? Like, what's it, what's it like being on, you know, the team from the ground floor and, and what's your, your current team like? Uh, yeah, it's been kind of an interesting journey for me because I didn't, you know, like I didn't walk into this role thinking I was going to co-found this company. Um, you know, I graduated from grad school and then ended up joining a group of people at a VC firm who were thinking about these problems around robots and automation. Um, and I was kind of just hanging out there to like help as a UX designer and like, you know, kind of slot in and be useful given the background that I had. Uh, and I think over the last couple of years that kind of took a journey onto itself, as you can see with artificial. Uh, and so to me, like it, it's been unexpected, I think as most good things end up being in some ways. Uh, and so that's been awesome. And I think some of the, like, I guess something I really appreciate about the team that I work with today is that there's like very, like a really interesting blend of folks who've done this so many times before, like, you know, they've had careers for like 25, 30 years building robots and automation or working in the life sciences space. And then there's like younger folks who are coming out of places like the media lab, like my friend and I, you know, I hired one of my friends into the company as well. And so it kind of creates this really interesting hybrid where you know people who've done it before and they feel confident about it and they feel like, you know, they know how to scale platforms. And then you have the newer energy of folks who are trying to disrupt the way something is done and using like newer tools. And so I think that creates a really interesting atmosphere that I personally love being part of. And I think is actually rare in a lot of startups where your co-founders look very different and are very different, um, but together you can build something really cool. So. Exciting. I, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm curious about your, you know, some of your previous experience. I, I, I saw that you, you were at the MIT Media Lab. Can you talk about that time? Yeah. Um, I mean, I ended up going to the Media Lab, like, after working at Palantir for several years, and I really wanted to get back to my robotics roots, uh, which I kind of explored for many years before that. And so I joined um, this lab called the Personal Robots Group at the Media Lab, uh, which is run by Cynthia Brazil. And so that lab really focuses on how you bring robots to dynamic human environments. Um, so my work there was looking at how you bring robots to the home specifically. Um, so like I did the study of kids starting at age five all the way to like older adults at 98. Um, and there was like almost 100 people over two years where we studied how they interacted with different robots in their home. Um, and so that was like a core part of the work I did there. And then we worked on a bunch of things around like aging and education and how you can sort of bring these technologies to these very unstructured environments. Um, so in some ways that's been really helpful as like context to bring to the lab space because there's still like a fair amount of, you know, unstructured spaces and like there's lots of people um, that you're navigating as you're bringing in robots into that environment. So that was like a fun ride. What what kind kinds of robots were these? Like, can you give me some examples? I'm just, I feel like the term robot can apply to so many things and I'm curious what 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 you mean typically by that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like a, as you said, it can apply to so much. Like I've heard people refer to like an Alexa as a robot all the way to like more complicated robotic arms and things like that. Um, at the Media Lab, we primarily focused on robots that exhibit social behavior. Uh, and so we had like a range of those kind of robots. And so with kids, um, we had this particular robot where you could slot in your phone 
and it was called Tega. Um, so you just slot your phone in and the phone actually powers all the movement of the robot itself. And so it kind of has two eyes, it can like move. And something that's really interesting about that space is that um, if you remember like the Pixar lamp, like it bounces around. And so a lot of the ways that an object like a robot elicits emotion from people is in the motion versus like how it expresses itself. And so we created all these like, you know, motions for the robot where it had like a squash and stretch or like, a, you know, all these kind of animated behaviors and the whole physical body would move as powered by the phone itself. Really? Yeah. Um, so that was kind of like a whole genre of things where you got to animate like a 3D thing and create yeah. all these motions with the motors and like everything like that. And so you use software to animate them? And yeah, them exactly. Okay. Yeah. And really, so the motion was what people connect with more so than like sounds or? Yeah, like so the motion of it, like if you think about the Pixar lamp, it's still just a lamp, right? But then you think like it's cute or you think it's angry or you yeah. think it's like, you know, and that's all from like the way that the animation designers have created the motion mm -hmm. of the lamp itself. Um, so we did the same thing with robots and creating these like animated characters <laughs> in a sense. Interesting. Um, and you mentioned like robots for kids versus robots for adults or did you say elderly? Yeah. What, what, what were the differences there? Were they similar or are they structured completely differently? Um, so we tried all sorts of like, um, so my advisor had built a company called Jibo. And so that had a lot of the principles of the work that had happened in that lab previously, um, but brought to like more, you know, like a consumer based product, right? And so you see Jibo has a lot of like the motions and the emotion and all these sort of bits. And so um, we used some of those, we used Alexa's. Um, we also like built, our own little prototype robots in the lab. Um, and so there's like a collection of things that we tested with different people and deployed them in their lab for like, deployed them in their home for a period of time. Um, and so it was kind of, it was nice to see it, like being able to compare how people react to different kinds of agents. So. Did people get attached to their robots? Like, were they sad when you took them away? Yeah, I actually have crazy stories like in my uh, like thesis, I think from Tell me. <laughs> like a, I actually had one little girl who was like five years old. Um, she asked if she could open the box of the robot and say like good night and like rest in peace like five times when she had to bring him back. Um, so she was like really upset. And then there was another story where, um, you, know, you know, like one of the robots, when you unplug it, it has like a 30 minute battery life. And so one of the participants, his mother-in-law got so terrified that something that you unplug could still be alive that she threw it out the window. Um, and so <laughs> that was like a fascinating adventure. Um, and we had people who put like, the you know paper bags on top of the robot when they were having like a important discussion because they felt like they were being watched in, in a way. Oh my gosh, um, interesting. And so even I had roommates at the time. And so I came home once because I had left one in the kitchen just to experiment on my roommate. Um, and so she had left like a Trader Joe's bag on top of the robot <laughs> when, you know, and it was like overheating when I arrived. Um, <laughs> so there I've had could like they, a, but they could listen to you, right? Was that like a feature? Yeah. Um, so like, you know, technically like any Alexa or Google, like they and can, of course, on prompt, like listen to you and answer your question. Um, so it's interesting to see how people kind of, you know, like when a robot exhibits social behavior, they get more attached to it. They see a ton of value in it, but then also they get terrified in other ways, right? Um, because it rubs up against like, everything it means to be human for them in a way um, and like why this machine is staring at them or exhibiting this behavior so yeah um, yeah do so you have kind of, do you still have robots in your house I have no robots in my house <laughs> um, do you have an Alexa I I used to it is now in my drawer and unpluged so I okay. guess that makes me <laughs> and why is that you just had no use for it any longer or were you worried that it was listening um, no, I think it's just the use thing, you know, like I yeah. spent so long studying them. It's kind of like, I feel like I know the entire scope of what it can offer me. Um, and yeah. so <laughs> I think uh, I love actually using my voice assistant 
assistant, like Siri, uh, in the car. That's oh. something that like, in the pandemic was the first time I got a car. And I just loved that use case of like being able to, yeah. you know, it's like hands-free. Um, but I think in a lot of the other contexts, like, I guess I just prefer using my phone to like turn off my lights and everything. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the car, that's when it makes a lot of sense. Right. Versus exactly. in the house, like, I, I went to this conference that um, was focused on software, you know, to like improve people's lives. And it was very, you know, optimistic and, um, you know, heartwarming in a way. And one of the, the talks was about quiet technology and the idea that like technology doesn't have to, you know, be talking to us or be interfering with us. Like it doesn't have to be an alarm going off. It can be quiet um, and they use the example of, um, like on the airplane, you know, the little red X above the bathroom, that's quiet technology telling you like it's available or not available. Right. And I think about that a lot with the like home devices and how often we're supposed to be like interacting with these things. I don't know. Like I'm all for the quiet. <laughs> Totally. I mean, I think um, I had this whole like rabbit hole I went down in grad school, I remember, where I really wanted to like have art, have like subtle technological components in my house <laughs> and experiment with that. Um, and so I actually had my grandpa who lives in India, record like stories from his childhood for me over Zoom. Um, and then I took them and I did like post-processing by like finding, you, you know, basically like transcribing it, getting images that were related and like pixelating it in the, and doing sort of generative art um, based off of the stories to kind of have it ambiently play in my environment while I worked in a way, um, kind of That's to like really remind neat. me of things. Yeah. And so... Yeah, I had all these like fun rabbit holes on weekends where I was sort of like, what if, you know, <laughs> technology wasn't so in your face all the time? So Right. So yeah. did you project the images or how were they played in your home? Um, yeah, so I tried projection. Then I also went on a different rabbit hole where I made LED panels um, and then kind of diffused the light with different kinds of like, uh, like essentially just like you know, like vinyl and like materials, right? Um, and then essentially use that to like just mount it on my wall and play with different things. So um, nothing cool. crazy, but it was kind of fun. I also yeah. made these like city boxes, like kind of maps of all the cities I'd lived in. Uh, and they all had like a little Arduino inside. And so you essentially, like when I woke up in the morning, the city with the closest weather to Boston would light up uh, and there'd be all these kind of, you know, like interactions that I just made with these city boxes. So it's kind of fun to play with the idea of, um, you know, computing or like technology that's more ambient in your environment. Sure. Wait, can you walk me through that again? So you had a box, you had different boxes for different cities? Yeah, so I laser cut um, maps of all the cities that I lived in. Um, and so made like a box for each city with like a cutout of the map from where like the location in which I lived um, and then mounted like Arduinos inside each of them with like lights. And so you could control it with like a phone app uh, and create like patterns, like light up the box with the most similar weather to here or light up like, like a, you know, uh, a box and show me like a memory from that city today on my phone. Oh. Um, and so I played with like kind of these boxes that could become little like shelves in my environment. Um, very cool. So are there any new new rabbit holes you've adventured down recently? Um, I think most of my time these days has been uh, artificial stuff, I would say, but I do like to dabble in like DIY things. So I got myself a vinyl cutter during the pandemic. Um, so I've been playing around with like all the different things I can do with that, which has been really fun. So. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting how I, you know, sometimes we have more time for, for, you know, um, creative exploration and, and other times we have less time. Um, I, I wanted to mention that I really love your moleskin notebook notes that, um, you shared on your website. Um, I'm a big moleskin person as well and kind of churn through those notebooks, uh, pretty frequently. Um, so I had a question, you had this post recently, um, kind of closing out 2020, coming into 2021, 
Um, and I think a lot of us experienced kind of a new way of living uh, during the pandemic and often had more time for different hobbies and, and living in a, in a different way than maybe we had previously. Um, how much did that new phase uh, play a role in you being able to um, be a part of launching this new company or even experiencing, you know, other new things in life? Um, like you mentioned, having a car, um, if you could just talk about that experience. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because the pandemic to me was probably like, like it was a very productive and like strange time as I'm sure it was for many people. Uh, and I, you know, like we were building a company that's always been remote from the start um, because, you know, like the CEO at my company, David lives in Texas. We have people in like Germany, we have people like on the East coast and Seattle actually. Um, and so we were like remote first and then everyone went remote. So there was kind of a like great forcing function to double down on like, how do you create good remote culture as a company? Um, so on the company side, I think it allowed us to really like lean into being a remote um, entity and like figure out what systems we needed for like good communication and practice in that sort of space. Um, on a more personal level, I mean, I think one of the things I realized through the pandemic is that when you're not like day to day, having this habit of going to the office and living your life a certain way, it allows you to pause and reflect on like a lot of things that you're taking for granted as assumptions um, in your interactions, like the role you're supposed to play or the way you're supposed to be, or like, you know, what hats you can wear um, in your friendships or in your professional life. And so it allowed me to like step away from that and really reflect to say like, what is the kind of person I want to be and how do I want to spend my time? Um, and I think it's something I've always been like, you know, active about reflecting on, but it allowed me to like erase any of the biases you get from just living your life like day to day and sort of interacting with the world. And I think what came out of it was awesome in, in some ways, because I, I don't know if I would have been able to like go from you know like early explorations on artificial to a series A. Um, in like in the normal world perhaps um it would have looked a lot different so yeah kind of like you you get into a particular pattern in life and and thereby miss out on some of the like more um exploration into like the other selves that you could be inhabiting exactly um so I think it let me kind of explore different sides of myself that I you know, couldn't have otherwise, I guess. Sure. Did you make any, any big changes over the last year? Oh, uh, well, I got a car, which I thought I would never do. Actually, I was like a serial, let me use public transport kind of person. Um, and so, I mean, I lived in New York and like Boston and Paris. And so they were all like cities. And when I moved here, um, I was like, I biked or took the Caltrain everywhere. And then when the pandemic hit, I was like, well, maybe I should get a car. And so I actually learned how to drive and got a car. Uh, and so that's been like a different like way to explore the same area in which I live uh, because now my mode of transportation and interacting with it and where I can go is a little bit different. So I've loved that. Um, I think the other parts are really like, I learned how much my environment influences me um, in my home. And so I love that it's like, you, you know, like I um, have like my whiteboard, like I write on my bedroom doors on the side there and like all these kind of things. But I started the practice of like every couple of weeks, I try to change something in my environment, like rearrange the furniture or like add some new art thing or whatever. Uh, and so I think that creates enough of like a change that I really enjoy just like being in a slightly different space than before. Um, so I feel like a lot of my apartment actually changed a lot in the pandemic just because I was trying to reinvent it every couple of weeks. So. Interesting. And was that because you were spending more time in your apartment? That yeah. you were trying to like change it up because you were just there so much? I think so. I mean, I think, you know, normally like I would go to work and we had like a office like incubator type space. Right. And so I would go and then I'd come home. And so I didn't really notice that my apartment was like more or less the same every day. Uh, and so like because I was spending so much time at home and I live in a studio, 
it's like a little bit harder to create the separation of space, right? And say like, this is my office area, this is like the other uh, bits. And so I think I had to rethink how to create like new environment so that it kind of pushes my creativity in a way. Um, and so I think that was like a big one because I like the stimulus of like a new environment in order to create new ideas. So. Sure. So you've lived, you've lived on the East Coast and now you're living on the West Coast. And you've been a part of, you know, a lot of different teams at this point, Palantir, MIT Media Lab. How can you talk about the kind of differences in, you know, the culture of these different companies and how, you know, your current team might be um, a, an optimal environment for you? I'm just making an assumption, but um if you could just reflect on on some of those past experiences and how they compare to your team now so i think like when i was at palantir um we really solved the like what is the problem today world right and so they were when i was there we were really starting out on like the commercial side of the business and exploring like what it looked like to work with these kind of fortune 500 type companies on the data challenges that they were having and so there wasn't really like a fixed roadmap of this is like our product line it was like let's explore and discover what our product line is um so a lot of the things that i worked on there were like solving the immediate challenge that existed um and you know like i moved to new york and after college and then immediately moved to Paris for Palantir, like for a project. And so there was always this like kind of, you know, like find the immediate problem, solve the immediate problem tone to it. And then when I went to Media Lab, um, I was solving problems in like the 30, 40 year landscape, right? Like what do robots and automation have to offer three decades from now? Uh, and so that means like very different constraints and very different ways to look at mm, the things that you're building. And it was a very different like mindset with which I looked at problems, right? Like I don't have to make it work in the real world today. I just need it to potentially work, you know, by the time I'm 70, I guess, right? Uh, and I think now I get to work in this sort of five-year landscape, which I really love actually, because you get to like, look towards the future and see if you can reimagine something. Um, but you also have the brass tacks as a startup to like deliver value in the immediate context. And so I think being able to like bridge those two into my current world where I have to be immediately valuable, but still get to have a vision um, for where we're going in this like bigger way, uh, I love doing personally. And so I think I will probably always stay in this like five to 10 year landscape because I think it's my happy spot. So. <laughs> That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I can I can relate to that from the research side of things and just, you know, some of what we're working on, um, not really having an impact in the near short term, right? And being very far out there and um, having to always kind of dial it in sometimes and think, well, what's, you know, what's the 2.0 and then what's the 3.0 and et cetera. And maybe we start with the 2.0 and not the 3.0 just to get it like over the finish line. Exactly. Um, but I think it can be hard sometimes too, when you're so excited about where things are going to go next and figuring that yeah, out. Yeah. It's like a, there's something like really nice about constraints, right? Like I think some of the best creativity happens in constraints. And so you kind of want some of them, and then not too many because then it feels frustrating. So what do you mean by that? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, like I've been like, I think my careers and jobs, like I've dabbled in so many things. And so I've had the opportunity to live in like an unconstrained problem, right? Like go into a space and sort of be like solve anything in like human computer interaction or like solve anything when it comes to like a robot robotics platform. And I think one of the things I realized over time is that sounds incredible because it feels like unbounded intellectual freedom. But in practice, without constraints, it's really hard to feel creative because you could literally do anything. Um, and so when you wake up in the morning, it's like, what do you choose to do becomes the question. And so I think the act of being able to put constraints on a problem is like a really important one. And I've 
gotten a much bigger appreciation for that in building a startup where it's like you can have this big vision and where you want to go, but you have to constrain it and be able to execute on it to do it successfully. Uh, and so I think it's really important to have enough constraints that you can create, um, but not too many, because for me, that feels very like kind of boxed in and then I don't enjoy what I do. So I think there's like a happy spot that I like to aspire towards, I would say. Interesting. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Like the writer having a deadline, right? Like you have a constraint of needing to turn something in at some point and therefore you are forced to produce. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm also terrible at doing things uh, like that. Really? Know, yeah, I, I was like, I love, I love doing it right before it's necessary. Okay, so you procrastinate. <laughs> I do. I think it's because like, if there is no deadline, I will keep iterating on it and like reshaping it. And so I've just accepted as a person that I let my brain reshape it. And then right before I just execute it and I'm happy with it. So yeah, I, I can definitely relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a real I I can be, I can be a procrastinator. I, I'm constantly trying to like get over that, but it, you know, I think also when you're busy, it just becomes a thing. Um, so I'm curious, you've worked at this intersection of artificial intelligence, robotics. Do you get asked any strange questions about these things, like from people who are outside the field? Yeah, all the time. Um, I used to get a lot more strange questions when I, I guess, uh, worked with like social robots, because I think everyone has an opinion on robots with eyes is one thing I learned. Um, and so that was like, definitely, you know, people would ask me, like, are those going to take over the world? Like, uh, I think one of the most interesting questions I got randomly was like, how did studying human robot interaction change my view on my personal life? Um, so that was like a fascinating one that someone asked me. And um, I think also like, the kind of Skynet line of questioning comes up a fair amount, much to my dismay. Skynet, Skynet meaning like, the like Elon's, I is it elaborate? I'm guessing. Basically, you know, like are we just everyone's gonna like robots will just be doing everything and like watching everything and there'll be a singularity or you know like that sort of angle uh and will robots take over everyone's jobs and like that whole space of questioning i often get i would say so. and so how do you respond to those types of questions um i think for me it's really like i've seen you know everything in robotics and automation or ai i look at as a tool at the end of the day um, and there's this code i actually like which is you know we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us and so really like i take it back to the responsibility is on us as creators to shape the tools that will build the next generation and so if you change the frame from like their replacements to their tools I mean, we have the autonomy to change how they interact with us and how we leverage them and what we do with them. Uh, and so I try to change the frame back to that for people where like, really, you know, like every human at their core, I think wants to have more creativity. They want to be able to spend their day doing things they enjoy. And if you can leverage tools to unblock that for yourself, you should absolutely do it. Uh, and so the responsibility, I think, falls on like people who are designing them, creating them, building them to do that. Uh, and so I like to operate with that as my personal like set of principles and thesis. But I try to change the frame to that because I think, you know, like we've created all sorts of tools like paintbrushes or, or like, you, you know, like laptops and phones and all these kind of things. And everything can be a double-edged sword, but if you design it responsibly, um, you know, everyone, no one protests a paintbrush at the end of the day, right? Like they enjoy that it is there um, versus just painting with your hands. And so um, that's kind of how I like to think about it. I like that. Are there any um, particular sci-fi books or TV shows that you're, you're a fan of? I mean, because for myself as a scientist, I think sometimes the books or shows that I'm consuming, I enjoy particularly if they get the science right. Um, so I'm curious if you have any, any like that. Oh, it's a funny question, actually, because I am terrible at watching sci-fi. Uh, this is like something that, you know, like when I went to the media lab, they were like big on sci-fi. There was actually a class on like sci-fi and what we can learn for our like current 
you know, world and what we're building. Um, and I think, you know, I've been asked this question a couple of times is like, why do I not like sci-fi? Uh, I think part of it is like, my brain is so like creative and coming up with stuff all the time. I find it very exhausting to be in someone else's like mythical story and idea space. Uh, and so whenever I watch TV, I enjoy watching just like everyday life things. Um, and so it's like, it's a weird quirk is like, you never expect, like I had never watched Star Wars until I went to grad school and my advisor wanted me to watch it. So I have, I have only seen like one Star Wars movie. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, this is like my, <laughs> and now life. I hold it over other people because it just gets them upset. <laughs> They're like, like a real problem. Nobody's comfortable with a roboticist who has not seen Star Wars. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So what do you, I mean, what do you enjoy when you're not creating? Do, do you read or do you like, do you like reality TV? I'm just curious. Um, I actually like part of how my friends know me is that they find it very strange that someone who like likes, you know, like I love reading like philosophy and complicated things, but then I will also love watching the Kardashians and reality television. Um, so I think it's like a dichotomy about me that like really confuses most people who know me at the end of the day. But, um, you know, I recently tried to use the Kardashians as a metaphor for explaining like fundraising to somebody. And so I, I'm like very much into the entire genre of lowbrow highbrow collide here so oh my gosh I am right there with you like I <laughs> I love I love a good reality tv show and just you know I don't know I think it's a I think it's a really interesting like portrayal of the human experience and like I find even the like background how these people are being produced to be really fascinating and like I don't know it's definitely Reality TV is like one of my go-tos after work for sure. Like Me too. I mean, I think it's kind of interesting because so much of like human robot interaction studying is like videotaping people interacting with robots and then doing like post-processing, whether you're doing something algorithmic or like going in there and annotating stuff. And this project I once worked on was looking at like attention and how people like show that they're paying attention. Um, so we had all these videos of like kids telling each other a story and then you would go and like mark behaviors like posture changes and gaze and like nodding and all this kind of stuff and I think there's so much you can learn from just like observing reality right and the dynamics that exist and so I think my social scientist brain like gets enthralled by um, you know just enjoying that after work I have to say so. yeah yeah so what was the Kardashian analogy that you used for fundraising Oh, um, I mean, it's been a little while. I think it was more along the lines of the fact that like, you know, in some ways when you're storytelling something, right, it is like about making it approachable and inviting people into your world. And I think something that like, I actually find um, someone like Kim does a good job of is like bringing people into her world. Right. And so something that's really true about like life science and automation is they're both complicated fields. Like sometimes I think I'm insane for trying to meld like two highly complex things. And so when you talk to someone who's not living in that space, they're not spending 24 hours a day like thinking about this problem, you have to invite them into your brain and like the way you think about it. Uh, and so I think sometimes like something like reality TV is a good example because they live a complex life, I'm sure, and have their day-to-day -day and like we don't know that or understand it, but like they're able to bring you in and, you know, let you feel like you do in a sense. Uh, and so I was trying to share that with a friend to say like a lot of storytelling in my mind is about how do you bring someone into this world that feels complicated but make it really simple um, and approachable. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, for sure. The like approachable, being vulnerable. There's a lot of studies that show how far that can go, right? Um, with um, bringing people in or bringing people into your life and even just your relationships at work, you know, showing vulnerability, exactly. showing that you're not perfect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, no, I like, I like that. That's a really good, um, really good example. I, I was excited like side note, but uh, we were hanging out with some friends recently, and one of one of friend of a friend is a producer for a um, like a Food Network reality TV show, 
And so I was picking his brain about like, well, what, what do you do as a producer? Like, what <laughs> he's like, you know, I, I usually go around and I, I'm like, how did that make you feel? Like half your cake is falling apart. How does that make you feel? <laughs> I just thought that was really funny. Um, and I, mean, I was it's like, not that dissimilar. I would say to like user research, right? You're just going into labs and being like, how does this pain point make you feel? So right, yeah, yeah. It's all it's all so fascinating. I mean, just the structure of some of these shows and how how they've evolved and. Um, how they relate the human experience, I guess. I think it's interesting. Um, anyways, one of our one of our rabbit holes for today. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was gonna say I like meeting someone else who uh, has a shared passion for reality TV. So. Oh yeah, yeah. My husband always gives me a hard time about it too. He's like, I can't believe you're watching this show. I'm like, you're playing a, a video game where you're like Borbian mining or something, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but you know, we, we all have our things. Um, yeah. So I, I guess I, I love this like creative side of you. And I think you've, you talked about this in the beginning, like that science has a creative side to it, which I definitely agree with you, and that's something I've observed for a long time. Um, and one one thing came up when we were getting ready for your interview was I I had some questions pitched towards a scientist, and you said I'm not a scientist. So I just was curious why you think that what you do is different from what a scientist does, and if you have an opinion on that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's a funny question for me because it's like, I thought I would be a scientist and then I spent so much time in like science and engineering, both in like labs that, you know, I, in like industry. And I grew up in a family of like engineers, like my mom is a software engineer and my dad's like a structural engineer. And so it was sort of like science and engineering was so core to how I grew up and what I did. And I was like a science fair nerd. Um, and I think part of why I guess I don't see myself as a scientist today is like, you know, like sometimes if you think about it, it's like science is a lot about understanding the natural world and like being able to experiment and learn about it. And then engineering is about taking that and like turning it into something practical. Um, but today, like with fields like synthetic biology or the ways that we're like thinking about new medicines, that is like blurring in a sense, right? You're, you're like learning about the natural world and then turning that into a thing. Um, and so I think part of why I always feel reluctant to call myself a scientist is that it's my job today to design for and with scientists versus be one of them. And I think it's important to acknowledge that like my day-to-day -day doesn't look like they, their day-to-day. -day. Um, and like, you know, have that humility walking in the door. Um, because unless you do, like, I think it's really not a great way to like learn about someone's frictions and day to day and how you can help solve that. Um, so I, I say that because not to create distance, but to create empathy in a sense to say like, I spend more of my time, you know, writing docs in Notion probably and like in a Figma file making UX things or like talking to the engineering team um, than I do running experiments. And so I want to be upfront and acknowledge that so that it leaves room for a conversation, I think. Interesting. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. I mean, I, I feel like it's, scientist is like an interesting term right now, like you said, like it, you know, within the field of science, there's so many different um, arms of it and, and you know, reasons why you could, could be a scientist, right? Um, and I think, like, for instance, within software engineering at some of these companies like Amazon, they hire a lot of what they call research scientists, but what the research scientist is there is very different from, like, the research scientist in my field. So I think it's interesting to talk about that nomenclature and why we, you know, might, might um, think of it in different ways. Um, so yeah, so is there anything else about artificial that, that you want to elaborate on today? Anything you're particularly excited about, like in the year to come now that you guys have closed your series A? Uh, I mean, like I said, I think the thing I'm most excited about is like 
building a product that more and more labs use. Um, and so, you know, like, like any series A startup, we're like hiring and doing things and growing as a company. Um, and so I think, you know, for me, it's like anyone who feels like they resonate with the spirit of the company and what we're trying to do, uh, we are always welcoming of, even if it's just for like a friendly chat. And I think one of the things that like, I personally really appreciated coming into this domain is that, you know, people answered my cold emails to come talk to them about their pain points and just learn about their day to day. And I really appreciate that, like, everyone's been so understanding and welcoming of that, because I don't think we could have built the company we're building without that, like, understanding. Uh, and so, you know, if anything that I've said, like, resonates with folks, like, I would love to chat with them, regardless of whatever the agenda is. <laughs> so. Awesome. That's great. And as far as advice that you would give to younger people who are interested in robotics or maybe just getting their start in their careers, is there anything um, you would you would advise them? Uh, I think I would say probably what I tell my younger brother also, which is like, you know, I've like one of the things that I was fortunate enough to have is that I experimented a lot and I had like mentors in my life who asked the question of like, you know, what, what would be your dream job description versus saying like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because I think the idea of like, what do you want to be when you grow up force fits like a job that already exists into your life in a way. And I think asking more from the perspective of like, how do I want to spend my day um, allowed me to explore a lot of different spaces while still like being me and having the skills that I have and bring to the table. Uh, and so I think if there's like any advice I would tell a younger version of me or to other people, it's like, don't feel like you have to force fit into the job descriptions that currently exist. Like, I think it's really powerful and fun to explore beyond that um, and see if you can write your own job description one day. So, yeah, absolutely. I think that's great advice. And it's, I mean, the, the reality is that there's going to be so many jobs on the market in 10, 20 years that we haven't even thought of yet and that like don't exist right now right like the world is changing so quickly and um i think artificial is a great great example of that um so congrats again on on your series a and for being a part of this exciting team that's bringing automation to life sciences i think it's a really important uh thing that we all need so thank you uh, um yeah. yeah anything else that you want to elaborate on or no, I think that's it. So, I feel like we covered the gamut of like Kardashian survival. I know. <laughs> yeah. And I like, I could probably ask you a million more questions about your, your home robots, but it was great to like hear some of the stories of the different demos you guys did. I thought that was really interesting. Um, yeah. So. It's, uh... <laughs> I just want to thank you for, for taking the time today to, to join us on the podcast and sharing some of your experiences. And I think um, this episode will be really interesting for all of our listeners. So thank you so much, Nikita. Yeah, thank you for having me. Mm -hmm.